Welcome to Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere with your host, Chris Parker. And we're back with Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere. I'm Chris Parker. And as a little reminder, the mustache is growing in, and that is about Movember. And in the month of November, um, we're raising awareness for mental and physical health, um, not only for men, but I would say for all people is, uh, is my ambition. And what we would love you to do is um, connect. And during this crazy Corona COVID time, uh, mental health is certainly a thing. So if you can simply call someone who you care and love about and just let them know that you, in fact, care and love about them, see how they're doing. And uh, um, if they need some help, give them some help. So that's uh, what, what Movember is all about. So uh, you can find more on that at uh, ebullient.com slash podcast slash Movember where you can see all the episodes that I'm doing in November. And if you want, you can also donate to that charity. So, um, yeah, I am here with uh, David Rendell. And David is coming in from uh, North Carolina in the U.S., where I'm based just outside of Amsterdam. And I met David a couple months back when we were doing a, a global innovation event talking about... Um, how to get a job. And I think that was uh, very relevant and it still is, you know, based on unemployment caused by, um, by Corona and, and, you know, the general state of things. And so I'm sure we're going to get into that and how to be your most unique self. I'm really looking forward to this. So David, thank you so much for joining. W would you please just share with us, David, um, what is it that you do and why do you do what you do? Well, what I used to do was travel around to places like Amsterdam and <laughs> do presentations um, all over the world. And now what I do is I sit in my house in front of a green screen and I talk to people on my computer. Um, but it's all the same, right? The goal before wasn't to be traveling or um, to be at events. The goal was to communicate the idea. So I guess that answers the second question. The reason I do what I do is because the concepts that I speak about have changed my life and improved my life and made my life happier and more fulfilling and more effective and given me better relationships. And so I'm trying to share that with as many people as I can. I wish someone would have told my parents when I was younger, would have told my teachers when I was in school, would have told my bosses when I was at work. And so I'm on a mission to basically do all of those things for uh, others that uh, didn't happen uh, for me because I wish I would have heard the message sooner. I wish other people would have heard the message sooner. What would you have told your parents and your bosses about yourself or about? I would have told them that everything they wanted me to fix about me, that I couldn't sit still and be quiet and do what I was told were in fact my best characteristics mm. and that I could build a life around those. And instead of feeling wrong and broken, um, they could have helped me find the place where I could use those characteristics to be successful, which is eventually what I did just without help, right? I, I became a professional speaker and now I get paid to stand up instead of to sit down. I get paid to talk instead of to be quiet and I get paid to run my own business, not what do, not to do what other people tell me to do. And so it took a long time though to get there. And I would guess most people wouldn't get there. And I didn't get there through some specific intentional process. It was just sort of an accident. And um, it seems like someone could have been smart enough to help me engineer that and smart enough to see that and smart enough to understand that. And um, so I'm just trying to share the information so that more people, uh, you know, don't make those same mistakes and can also potentially open some doors for people that otherwise would have stayed closed um, for them. That helps me understand the, the statement, um, the, the weirdest and weakest children make the best adults. Um, can yeah. you tell me about that? Well, I did. I, my, my first book was, or my first book on this topic was called The Freak Factor, um, Discovering Uniqueness by Flaunting Weakness. And so I would talk to usually mostly leaders and managers and executives about how to understand that their employees' weaknesses are also strengths and how to use that to help people be more successful at work and also to be happier in their life and in their relationships and it had some carryover there. But the most common question I would get after speaking to people who were there ostensibly to hear about how to manage people better was, hey, Dave, I got this kid with ADHD. I've got this kid with dyslexia. I've got this son or daughter with autism. What do you have for them? And so I wrote a Freak Factor for Kids book and just made it an illustrated story that little people um, could understand because 
people care about their work, but most people seem to care more about their families and their children and their relationships. Um, and so it was really just in response to that. And that's the message that I want people to understand that, that we think we want our kids to be normal. Um, when the doctor says that our kid is progressing normally, their physical development is normal, their mental development is normal, we feel excited like we're doing something right. And at the same time, if you ask parents, do you want your kids to be excellent? Do you want them to be amazing? They'd say, absolutely. Well, that's not normal. Um, and so we have this confusing relationship with normal and with different. And so I'm on a mission to show people that the weirdest kids do make the best adults and that those things that we often think are wrong with those kids or damaged or broken or uh, inappropriate or ineffective in those kids is actually probably going to be the thing that was is the most likely to make them successful. Um, in fact, I'm doing a call tonight to talk to a bunch of uh, people about that very thing. And so even more, more and more, even when I talk to, let's say, entrepreneurs, which is your audience, they say, can we have our spouses and our partners and our children on the call? And can you, can you, uh, so we developed an assessment for kids um, as well. And so, yeah, if I can tell somebody directly, I don't need their parent or their teacher or their employer to understand it. If I can teach them at a really young age and give them that sense of confidence that they don't need to conform and comply to what everybody else says is going to make them successful and help them pursue their own route and find their own alignment, uh, maybe they can do it without that help and without that support. So that's exciting as well. So I've ended up speaking to more and more schools and teachers and children and students directly um, instead of teaching to just the audiences that I used to communicate with. I, I love it. And um, both of our boys have dyslexia. Um, and I've been really careful um, and, and, and really not understanding it enough myself. Um, but really to try to sort of couch that and position that as a superpower of, of, of you know, that, that they're incredibly successful people and, you know, and, and actually this different ability of thinking is, is something to be cherished. Yeah. Yes, you might struggle on here and there, but, but you know, you're excelling here and there and, and that's with every kid is struggling somewhere and excelling somewhere. So yeah. it's, um, yeah, we've been really careful around and, and hopefully not too careful around the, uh, um, yeah, how to position that with them. And then, and then it's also interesting that, that, that you know, they're, they're 10 and 11. Um, sometimes they ask like, like, uh, okay, well, who is, you know, really successful and has dyslexia? And then, uh, um, that, yeah, that's a nice conversation to have. Um, no, and yeah, I love it. Tell them about? Well, they, um, there's a couple of guys that I've worked with. One of, one of them who is um, um, literally a genius guy, um, a, a data scientist guy who they've met. And I can point to him and say, look at this incredible stuff that, that Bill has made. Um, look, you know, the things he's done in the life he's created. So that's, that's an obvious one. Um, I have another good friend, uh, Martin, who is, is really a visionary in, 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 uh, in technology. And I work closely with him. And, um, and he has found ways to really thrive and succeed. And so, so these are people that are near me that I, that I know have the superpower. And so I can just go, yeah, look at, look at him. You know, he's he's doing good. You know, so it's, this is, this is all, uh, this is all good. So. Yeah. When I do my speech, it's a major section of the speech to talk about dyslexia. I try to talk about, cause I think it can be easy for someone to go, well, that's cute, Dave, you know, you talk too much and maybe you were a little bit rebellious, but I have, or I know someone with a significant disability and that's not the same as what you're talking about. And so I use dyslexia in the section on appreciation to show people that not only um, is it a strength? But again, those strengths and weaknesses are connected and you couldn't have one without the other. If you fixed the dyslexia, you could actually end up damaging uh, the strength of that person. So I want to share a couple of things. Number one, I would really recommend a book called The Power of Different by a lady named Gail Saltz, uh, S-A-L-T-Z. Um, I just reread it. I listened to it and then I got the book because I wanted to be able to look through it. And so she's got a lot of great examples in there of people with dyslexia who succeeded along with interviews from people that wouldn't be famous or well-known at all, but who can really give you a story about their life and how their dyslexia has improved their life. But the examples I use in my talk are uh, Paul Orfala. He uh, started Kinko's um, and sold it to FedEx for $2.4 billion. Uh, Richard Branson. Uh, who's obviously well-known in your part of the world, uh, the founder of the Virgin series of companies. And um, Ingvar Kamprad, the billionaire founder of Ikea, uh, had dyslexia. 
And uh, Paul Orfila actually wrote an entire book about it. So I'd encourage your kids to check that out or for you to check that out. And it's right in the subtitle. He's like how a hyperactive dyslexic, um, you know, built an empire basically. And they asked him directly, if we could give you a pill that would cure your dyslexia, would you take it? And he said, absolutely not. Because uh, when you fix my weakness, you destroy my strength. And so I'm actually working right now. I was just downstairs before this working on um, an online version of my assessment. It used to just be this simple kind of three page PDF where you pick some strengths from a list and you pick some weaknesses from a list and you went to the last page and discovered how the fact that you're persistent is the same reason you're stubborn, how the strength mm -hmm. of persistence is the same as the weakness of being stubborn and how that thing you're trying to fix is actually one of the best things about you. And there's a whole series of those examples. And um, I had this brainstorm the other day, I've been, uh, we're turning this into an online resource. And so I have to have way more than what I used to have and have a report for each person's potential match and explain what that match means and what they might do differently with their life based on that. And I just had this kind of panicked moment the other day. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, I got a, I know some of these weaknesses and strengths match up with these disabilities. And wouldn't it be cool if I listed all the weaknesses and strengths and put in a disability that was related to that one? And then I had so many, I was like, well, wouldn't it be awesome if I had the disability at the top and I had a whole list of their strengths and weaknesses that went with that particular disability. And one of the cool things about the power of different is she categorizes based on the DSM-5, the, the psychological manual they use to diagnose uh, mental health issues basic categories of, of what she calls mental differences or brain differences um, and dyslexia learning difficulties being one of those. And so, you know, I was able to do that for about probably 10 um, different um, brain differences and give people just a very quick, wow, you don't have to wonder, you don't have to guess, you don't have to try to imagine or figure it out. Here's documented, researched, um, strengths and weaknesses that come with something that only looks like a weakness, right? That only looks like a downside. Um, and so that's something that I'm really, really excited about. And again, something that um, I think adds to my passion for the work that I do beyond it just being a business. I want people to um, hear this because I think it has the power to transform people's lives. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, I'm I'm eating it up just for very selfish reasons, and and um, so I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, I'm triggered by the word disability, because um, yeah. um, I've met a few people in my life, and there's no one who's normal as far as I can. Yeah. So um, tagging someone as a disability with, with our boys, they they have been um, measured also. Hoch Becroft and um, high high intelligent. I don't know what the English translation is. I've been away too long, um, and in that, in that call it over there, uh, Hope Bacroft. So, so high capable, high IQ, I guess. Yeah, high IQ. Yeah, yeah. Um, we call them gifted, maybe over here, gift, or yeah. gifted and talented. And and the research we've done there is is um, in, in the whole school of thought of twice exceptional, which makes it even harder for the teachers to understand because they're like, wait a second, these are these are gifted high IQ kids that are off the charts on most of their tests. And the fact that they're on the bottom on these other ones, they just just don't know what to do. And because they're quite mellow kids, they're good kids. They're not throwing knives at each other in school and things that they're like, well, they're not a problem. And um, and so we're, yeah. we're, we're finding what trying to find ways of, OK, well, what is the what is the path? You know, the, the child has to lead their own life. But what is the path of um, what I look for is, is playful, happy, safe. You know, so so where can they do their job of playing and being children in a way which makes them the most happy and the most safe? You know, and if I can create that path, then they'll probably figure their way out. And uh, I hope well, this, I hope the school system doesn't sort of beat all that magic out of them because that's uh, the risk of. It is a risk, and I think one of the things I tell parents, and it sounds like you're doing, is if you can at least counter what they hear in the school system, then at least they know there's another way, right? It's like a fish discovering the water. If everyone's telling them the same thing, they can't possibly imagine that there might be any other kind of truth out there. But if mm. you counter that a little bit, I want to go back to what you said about twice exceptional, because I think most people wouldn't understand that. And I think it's a huge point. And, and more and more in what I studied, there's a guy named Todd Rose, 
um, who writes some amazing stuff. One of his books called The End of Average. And he says that everybody has, and this is what you were saying earlier, a jagged profile. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no normal. There's even when you average things out, there's no person and there's actually scientific evidence for this. There's no person that meets the average profile. There's no person that meets. He uses Air Force pilots as an example. They tried to find the average so they could build the cockpit to fit the average person. And once they built it to fit the, fit the average person, it didn't fit a single individual because right. none of the individuals had average arm length and average leg length and average hand size and average foot size and average head size and average distance between their eyes and just all these sort of characteristics. And so um, understanding that jaggedness, one of my least favorite phrases that people use is how you do anything is how you do everything. And that's absolute nonsense. Somebody with dyslexia is going to struggle to read and yet can actually be magnificently talented in another area. And yet what we want to do is go to the bottom and go, well, this must be how bad you are. And this must be the level of most everything that you have going on. And we're going to work at this level and not allow you to move into any other hmm. direction. I think that idea of a jagged profile um, for, for Todd Rose, it's like this back and forth across the middle of, of an average. But another version is one that I use in my talk is from Peter Drucker. He said, strong people always have strong weaknesses too, where there are peaks, there are valleys, right? Strong people always have strong weaknesses too, where there are peaks, there are valleys. And so what we hope is what we're trying to do, what the school system definitely tries to do is just create people like this. And yeah. certainly they, they would see themselves as wanting to constantly kind of raise that level, but they, they want somebody who's good at math and who's good at English and who's good at history and who's good at science and who's good at and who's good at and who's good at athletics. And, and you just, and they kind of assume if you're good, you're good. Instead yeah. of that somebody could be phenomenal in one area and really struggle in another area. And that that not only would be okay, but could be really powerful. And, and to your point, people are starting to recognize that some of the most gifted people are also the people with the biggest deficits in other areas. And so we make one of two of the mistakes. We either think of them as gifted and can't figure out what's going on in this other area, or we think of them as damaged and can't figure out, and we, and we don't even end up believe we put them in special education or something like that. And they never have the environment and the opportunity to develop that really highly talented part of themselves. And so, um, you know, you're right. I don't love the word disability. Even in my book, I use the word weakness. And fundamentally, I don't believe that it is. I figure, I believe that it's, 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 a, it's a part of a characteristic that's both positive and negative. There's nothing technically wrong with it. And that mostly situationally, it matters. When I'm a speaker, nobody cares that I talk too much. Um, and so I don't have a weakness in some kind of objective sense. Um, and, and our disability mindset is judged by our comparison, again, to the average and to normal and all these kinds of things. Uh, but I think sometimes to communicate with the general population, we can't completely create a brand new um, language, right? So sometimes you have to use some of those terms. But I do think that's part of the problem. Oftentimes mm -hmm. we go, not only do we say someone has a disability, we say that person is disabled as, as though there's this universal sort of uh, wrapper around them, that they're wrapped in this disability, they're consumed by this disability, instead of it's one part of a larger human being, um, and, and that it's, it's just one piece of the puzzle. And so I do think that's worth discussing. Um, and it's part of, again, why I do the work that I do. I started my career helping people with disabilities to get job opportunities. Um, and that was the only, th that's part of the way I came across this, is the only thing that mattered. I worked with people with developmental disabilities, so sub-average intellectual functioning, you know, people who would really struggle to do basic tasks, sometimes feeding themselves, sometimes dressing themselves, certainly no academic work really of any kind, a real lack of abstract understanding. One guy wanted to take his, um, take a thermometer, a wall thermometer home so he could show his dad how hot it had been, right? Um, just not kind of, you know, getting those mm. kinds of things. And so, um, the only two things that mattered in my world was what can the person do? Because what they couldn't do, that list was so long, it was irrelevant. What can they do and what do they like to do? What do they want to do? What will they do? Hmm. And because you don't fix a developmental disability, you don't fix somebody's, um, somebody's mental disability in that particular kind of a situation. Um, you, you can't replace those deficits. And so I... I then went on to start believing that that 
even for those who, to your point, would say don't have a disability, which I think that's that's rare for someone not to have anything wrong with them. But for people who aren't technically labeled as disabled, um, I think it's true for all of us. I think all that matters for really anyone is what can you do and what do you like to do, not what can't you do, what should you be able to do, what's wrong with you, how can you fix it, how can you get over it, how can you get past it. I think those are much less relevant. Uh, the, the dyslexic people who managed to become very successful rarely did that because they fought really hard to go through the normal path of success through education and reading um, and those kinds of things. Paul Orfler ran his whole company using voicemail <laughs> because he can't read and write. He didn't spend his time getting a tutor and the richer he got, he didn't invest more and more into trying to succeed using tr traditional methods. Um, he was he had ADHD, so he's constantly interacting with people and, and throwing parties and having company wide picnics for this multinational corporation and getting hundreds of people together and spending all this time talking to them, whereas most CEOs would be in their office typing emails and all these kinds of things. Well, he certainly couldn't do that, but he didn't just succeed, even though he had that disability. He succeeded because mm -hmm. that disability caused him to seek a new direction, right? And to do mm -hmm. something different. Um, and so I think that's a huge mistake that we make when we when we look at people. We think that the overcoming and that we love those stories. Oh, the person overcame this challenge in order to be successful. And so we miss all the situations in which the pe person used the challenge to be successful, that the challenge was mm -hmm. actually an advantage and that they actually did better uh, because of what was wrong. There's not very many billionaires. So how come so many of them have dyslexia if dyslexia is a horrible disability that destroys your potential future? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And yet people just go on with their lives thinking that if you struggle to read, you're probably not going to be a good student. And if you can't do well in school, you won't do well at a job and you won't mm -hmm. do well in life. So you might as well you know, give up now because it's not going to happen or work really hard to become a better reader, even though you won't ever really probably do that. Sorry, yeah, I'm getting out of control over here. I, I love your out of controlness. Um, I'm going to find some of these books like the Todd Rose and the others and put them in the show notes. Um, so thank you for that. I think um, how how does that um, passion and that experience come into the um, Pink Goldfish, which um, uh, we, we, we've talked about before a little bit on, on, on our previous time yeah. together. And um, I, I, what, what I pick out of this is this is sort of a, a, a way maybe not for disabilities or weaknesses, but for, for um, uniqueness and, and actually lean into your uniqueness. Um, yeah. And there's a version two in progress right now. And yeah. there's some, there's, you add an, an E to Flossum. I saw, I read that. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you want to talk about the new E and where you're going yeah. with this whole body of work. Yeah, so the pink goldfish is really just an extension of the freak factor. You know, Stan said, hey, Dave, I want to do a goldfish book on the freak factor. And so pink goldfish just does for corporations and organizations and nonprofits and even governments and communities what the freak factor tries to do for people is that, hey, your business could flaunt its weaknesses. Your community could flaunt its weaknesses. And especially communities, you know, you're not, you're not going to build a mountain for people to ski on uh, in some flat area of the world. You're not going to uh, create an amazing river. You're not going to, you know, you kind of have what you have. And, uh, you know, maybe you're a small, small city or a small town. That's, that, that's a great example. Let's do that right now. In the pandemic, cities went from looking amazing, London, Amsterdam crowded cities where people are living all in the same building and right next to each other and sharing the same narrow, small sidewalks and roads. Cities like that went from looking amazing to looking mm, in a total lockdown. That doesn't look very attractive. High rises, city living in the middle of everything starts to look really unattractive and out in the middle of nowhere starts to look pretty dang good. During the whole pandemic, I live out in a rural area in North Carolina. I don't live in a big city. I live in a standalone house. Um, I live out in the country where I can be running by farm fields. When I go run on the roads by where I live, I'm not going to encounter another human being. I'm not going to make anyone else sick. I'm not going to cause any problems. But my brother lived in London uh, during the pandemic and, and was allowed at some point only 30 minutes to be outside per day before they had to go back in their house again. Um, and so you don't fix that. London doesn't become a, a, a nice uh, a rural hamlet and a rural hamlet doesn't become London. So at some point, the question is, how do we do what we can with what we have? 
Um, and how do we stop wishing we were something else and looking at all the downsides of what we have? How do we see the upsides? And the pandemic has really shown that there's been people who are like, oh, well, I live in the country, you know, and then they're like, hey, I live in the country. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, I don't have a beautiful view in the, of a high rise in the city. Mm. Hey, I don't I'm not stuck in a high rise in the city. And so those same things, um, uh, you know, apply to businesses that weaknesses can be strengths and the things that we're hiding. So this goes to the new E and Flossum. It's E is for exposing. Um, and so it's just being honest about who you are, being honest about what you have, being honest about what you don't have, stopping all the spin control, all the things we think of as marketing of trying to put sugarcoat something and put the best, put it in the best light. It's really refreshing and it really connects with people when you're honest about who you are and what you can do. I worked with, for example, some really small digital agency owners one time and they asked a really weird question during introductions. They said, how do you talk about your organization's size when you meet with potential clients? They didn't say, how much money do you make each year? How many employees do you have? They didn't talk about some measurement. They said, how do you talk about it? And what I learned in the meeting was, people were ashamed basically to some extent of how small they were and were worried that clients would find out. And mm -hmm. I said, look, Pink Goldfish is about the opposite of that. Pink Goldfish is saying, here's my cell phone number. It's just me and Steve. We work in my basement. I always have my company phone with me. You'll always get the CEO every time you contact me. You're never going to get a junior associate. You're never going to get somebody who's just learning. You're never going to get anybody who doesn't know what they're doing. You're never going to get anybody who can't transfer you to the person who can help you. It's just me and Steve, right? And our costs are super low because we work in my basement. You know, we have our own computers and we've been doing this all ourselves. We got tired of the mm -hmm. corporate situation. We're going to give you 100% of our time and our energy and our focus. It's just me and Steve. It's not going, well, we have the potential to work with contractors and we have a system in which we can work mm. together to crowdsource that. That's bull crap, right? You're not going to be somebody who needs a, a 4,000 person multinational agency with offices in Tokyo and Shanghai mm. isn't going to work with you, right? And that, mm. that needs to be okay. And so Pink Goldfish is about acknowledging who you are and just like with Freak Factor, flaunting it, being unapologetic and unashamed about that because you know that those weaknesses are also strengths and that there's a market for what you have. You don't have to pretend to be something um, that you're not. And so that's a huge part of one of the things that we're finding that's really fun is, and this is part of exposing, is there's more and more uh, people who figured out that you can turn one-star reviews into advertisements. And so there's a place called Snowbird, which is a ski resort in Utah in the Western United States. And their advertisement was simply the one star review printed word for word on a picture of a person skiing down the side of a very dangerous mountain, which was the criticism that this place is scary and dangerous. And you have to be really, really good to ski these slopes. And their message was, yeah, it is. That's and if you're are, into yeah. it. Join us. And if you're not, let this be a warning. Don't, don't come and be upset. Right. Mm. So we want to be upfront. We don't want to hide that. We don't want to trick you. We don't want to pretend there's a bunny slope. We don't want to pretend you should bring your children uh, or your spouse or your partner who's never gone skiing before. Mm. This isn't the place for that. This is dangerous. This is the Mount Everest of you know, mm. skiing kind of situations. You don't, you go for a hike in the woods. You don't go for a hike up Mount Everest if you don't know what you're doing. And so that's a great example of exposing, but most of the time we're taught, hide that, be ashamed of that, try to fix that, don't admit that, find a way to put some on it, contact that person. Some people do this with Amazon reviews, contact that person and offer them a gift card if they'll take the review down so you have all five-star reviews. Um, and so this is something that we've become really excited about, that there's, there's a lot of people, not enough, and it's certainly not a sweeping the world or anything, but there is significant evidence that you can succeed by bragging about, by sharing your one-star reviews instead of apologizing and feeling like you've done something wrong and thinking that you could somehow make mm -hmm. those people happy. In fact, uh, there's a great example that's coming your way. It's at least across the pond from you. Um, there's a lady who did, um, she found that there were one-star reviews for every U.S. national park. There's 62 of them. And every U.S. national park, I mean, we're talking about like the Grand Canyon. I mean, some of these are natural wonders of like the world. Mm. Um, 
And someone's like, ah, it's just a hole, a big hole. One star, boo, I don't like it. And so she's created this beautiful poster with the one star review for all 62 national parks. But now she's going to Canada and finding one star reviews for their parks. She's going to England now and doing one star reviews for their parks. And so there's just this thing where people love to complain. And then the people who they're complaining about think, let's fix it. Are you going to fix a national park, Chris? I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, that's absolute lunacy. So why do you even care what anybody's review of that particular situation is? You're not going to repair that. You're not going to fix nature. You're not going to change that in some kind of way. And so I think the fact that someone's willing to complain about the Grand Canyon should show you that maybe you don't need different burgers. Maybe you don't need to offer more sides. Maybe you don't need to be open longer. Maybe you don't need more sizes of options for t-shirts or whatever it happens to be, mm. maybe those people are wrong and it's fine and good the way it is and you don't have to fix it. And that's really the message of Pink Goldfish. I love it. And um, and there's a new version coming out. When, when do you think yeah, that will be published? Gonna, um, it's hopefully uh, going to be released next year on April Fool's Day, um, which is two years, three years. I'm not going to, I'm not even, I'll be honest. I'm not sure. Uh, two or three years since we published the first one. But the that's the thing about the book that's got us so excited is even one year after publishing the first version, we had, and we were recording the audiobook, we had an hour of extra audiobook content that we just added to the end because we had so many new stories and examples. Um, and that was almost immediately like things that we just missed, like the deadline of publishing the book. And now we almost have a whole extra book. I mean, it's just, the the examples are just even better, even more amazing. And they keep coming in. Like somebody just told me yesterday that um, the new Borat movie just came out. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it just came out on Amazon. Um, and um, I haven't seen it yet. But the first Borat was banned in Kazakhstan because mm -hmm. he pretends to be Kazakhstani and they saw it as very negative towards Kazakhstan and Kazakhstanis. So version one banned in Kazakhstan. Version two, it's years later. There's different people in charge of tourism for Kazakhstan. Most people wouldn't even know you could be a tourist in mm -hmm. Kazakhstan, and it may not be the greatest place to do that. Um, anyway, this time around, they've actually taken the slogan from Borat, where he says, very nice, and they've made it the tourism slogan for Kazakhstan. Yeah. And they keep putting out these ads where they show something amazing in Kazakhstan and just go, very nice. At the bottom, and they're actually using, so you go from banning it over here, can't you take yourself too seriously, can't take a joke, can't be honest about the fact that some of it's true, mm -hmm. all the way over to flaunting it. And, and, and it's causing people to pay attention to Kazakhstan when no one would otherwise be paying attention to Kazakhstan. And they finally realized that this time. Um, and so that was just one that we got yesterday. There was a there's a group that does tourism in Texas and they were reading Pink Goldfish. And so I was checking in with them every week when they would have their book club meetings and just hanging out and mm -hmm. talking with them. And um, he shared that example um, just the other day. And it's just absolutely perfect. And so that'll probably be in the next book. I mean, so even as we're wrapping up 2.0, we're getting examples from just everywhere. And so once you see it, um, you can't stop seeing it. And, and it really encourages you to, to, to hopefully try it for yourself because it works. Um, hmm. And it's not, uh, it's a way to separate yourself from the crowd because most people aren't going to be doing that. I love it. And um, um really looking forward to it. And uh, um one more question before we wrap up, and then I'm also curious if you've got any anything to fire back at me. Um, Ironmans and triathlons is something that you're busy with. Uh, um, wow, I'm impressed. I've, I've run a, a half marathon once. Extremely proud of that. But um, doing Ironmans and full triathlons is a complete other level. Um, how does that work with you? Because that, that, that takes some huge discipline and, and, and commitment. I'm, I'm really no. impressed. No, it absolutely doesn't. And in fact, I just okay. did a speech about that the other day for, um, they did like uh, six speakers in an hour on this call. And it was, they called us elite athletes. I'm not sure that that's true given what some people have accomplished, but, um, I did my 10 minutes on a quote from Pavarotti, the famous Luciano Pavarotti, the famous opera singer, 
Um, and he would he, he won so many awards and he was so famous and so successful, especially doing something that most people don't pay attention to. You know, he wasn't a pop singer. He was an opera singer. And yet he achieved that level of kind of popular fame. And uh, people were like, wow, you know, people would always say to him, you know, you must be really disciplined. And uh, he said, it's not discipline, it's devotion, right? It's mm. not discipline, it's devotion. And so that's what I try to explain to people. Remember, I was always in trouble as a child because I couldn't sit still. And people told me the only way to succeed was to learn how to sit still, calm down, relax, <laughs> take it easy. Your problem is you're hyperactive. Think about how many million kids we medicate every year because they're hyperactive. Mm. Then as an adult, and it just happened with you, as an adult, I take that hyperactivity and I use it in an event that people understand and respect. And then those same people who criticized and punished me go, oh, yeah, Dave, that's amazing. Nice job. Right. Mm. So that's what I try to show people with the freak factor. And we do the same thing in Pink Goldfish, that when you amplify, when you turn up the volume, Stan loves the spinal tap, turn it up to 11 sort of thing. When you turn up the volume on that thing that people have been telling your whole life to turn the volume down on, that's when you have success. So it actually takes self-discipline for me to not exercise when I might be injured. It actually takes self-discipline for me not to just go farther all the time. It actually takes self-discipline for me to do less, not to do more, because mm. I love to be active. I love to be outside. When I was um, when I was in, I've been to um, I've been to um, the Netherlands a, a number of times, and one time I was doing back-to-back -back speeches in Amsterdam, Berlin, Barcelona, London, and then going to Paris. Um, and in each of those places, um, I would wake up early in the morning because I had very little time and I'd wake up early in the morning and I'd throw on my shoes and I'd go for a 12, 13, 14 mile run. So that's like 20, you know, 20 kilometers. And, and I'd go past all the major sites. Um, I think in Amsterdam, I ran through the city and then out to a place called Vondel Park or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the name of it. Well, yeah, Vondel um, Park is sort of a sort of yeah. central park on yeah. sort of the outskirts. So I tried to find like some kind of cool yeah. place to kind of as a destination mm. and also to run through because uh, earlier in the year I'd done New York City. And mm. and when I was in Berlin, I went past, uh, you know, the wall and the Reichstag and the, um, the uh, I'm forgetting the, the name of it now, but the um, Brandenburg Gate and and all these things and, and Checkpoint Charlie and, and all these kinds of things. And so... And then in France before, um, in, in Paris before uh, Notre Dame was burned, you know, I was able to uh, go for a run one morning and I'm, I'm down the Champs-Elysees when no one's out there and I, to where I could mm. go through the Arc de Triomphe without getting run over and without 8,000 tourists. And I was the only person in the whole field in front of the Eiffel Tower, except for two like models mm. who were having portraits taken um, because it was early in the morning and the sun was just coming up. And so that activity level um, has allowed me to see and do things that, you know, some that would take people three days of touring to see those things and they'd be fighting all the mm. other tourists in order yeah. to do it. And so for me, it's hard to not go do that. It's hard to, um, you know, sit down and write my book, sit down and work on my assessment, stay inside and do activities related to marketing and stuff like that. And so that is part of the lesson, I think, is that all that is, is an expression of who I am. And it actually takes more self-discipline for me to not do it uh, than it does to do it. And that's what I want everyone to find. Find that thing that you can't not do, right? Mm. And yet when other people see you doing it, they go, wow, that's impressive, right? But it's mm. not from turning the volume down, from moderating, from balancing. It's from turning that volume up on those things that are just part of who you are. I, I love it. Great. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Before we wrap up, um, yeah, anything, anything you want to fire back at me after the conversation? Well, uh, do you, uh, knowing what you know about pink goldfish and knowing what you know about the freak factor, have you seen, and I like that you shared the examples of people, you know, with dyslexia who are succeeding earlier. Do you have, do you know of any examples of businesses who are flaunting their weaknesses or have you seen people succeed by using the thing that other people thought is a negative as a positive in, in your life and in your work? Well, um, yes. And, and there is, uh, Stan, I know from the whole customer experience uh, world, and some of the principles in the customer experience world, and, and based on customer um, journey design, um, based on the psychology of, of um, peak end rule and you know um, good pain, 
through those kind of conversations, you can you can you can talk about having more understanding that you don't have to be good at everything. So so I think it's a micro version of what you're talking about. I think your your yeah. stories are more glorious. But what I what I um, frequently um, challenge with with executives is you know don't do a customer service you know satisfaction survey and then try to fix everything. You know understand. Um, what is it? Because maybe there's things that you don't care about as a brand and your customer doesn't care about, but they're complaining about it, but who cares? And actually psychologically that, that creates a more meaningful and more memorable experience. So um, yeah, it's just like in businesses, we tend to pay attention to the employees who leave and we want to ask them why they're leaving. We rarely interview the people who have been kicking butt for 20 years and doing an amazing job and love working for us and ask them why they've stayed and what they enjoy and what we're doing mm. right. We tend to oftentimes miss that. Mm. So we're focusing on, uh, focusing on the wrong things. And you're right. And it goes, you know, what you just said about you don't have to be good at everything in business. It goes back to your boys. You know, the biggest thing that that the author said in that book, The Power of Different, the biggest problem with their educational system is the only way to get through it is to be good at all the things. You're not allowed to fail at any of the pieces in order to keep going. And so even when you're doing really well at one of the pieces, if you're doing really poorly at one of the pieces, you have to bring at least all of the pieces up to a certain level before you're allowed to move forward. Because we assume that there, again, there's some kind of linear connection that you can't, yeah. you can't do calculus unless you can, you can remember your multiplication tables. But that's actually not true. Calculus is about concepts and you can use a calculator and a computer to do the, to do the multiplication for you. But we won't let you move past a certain point until you've done that previous point. You got to be good at all the things if we're going to let you try new things. And it's the same thing in business as it is in education and the rest of our lives. It's not about being good at everything. You can't and you don't need to be. Mm. Um, and customers don't expect you to be. Good is, is, a, is, a, is a, 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 a word that's defined so, so differently by so many different people that you can't ever achieve it even if you tried. Yeah. Yeah. And the um, anecdote or, or example that I was going to bring up is, is you've already mentioned it, is IKEA. And the story there um, that I heard from one of the executives from, from IKEA or inter-IKEA systems over here, um, it's a, it's a, you know, IKEA is a franchise, if people didn't know that. Um, when, and this goes back a couple of years, but they, 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 were, they were hackers. They were IKEA hackers, communities that were coming up online that were taking the IKEA products, modifying them sometimes significantly, um, and then re reselling it and posting it and celebrating it. And the, the initial reaction from IKEA was, was fury. Of 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 no, you're de defacing, you know, or, you know the typical corporate reaction. And then later, and I don't know the whole story, but but it was um, um, I, I love thinking about it that they actually then they turned turned it around and they actually started inviting these communities of furniture hackers into the stores and having events and speed building contests and then you know inviting you know artists to find you know new decals and labels and they actually then then leaned into it and they said, well, okay, these people are 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 becoming you know being more creative with our product than we ever imagined. So let, let's go with that. So I, th I think maybe it's not total freak factory, but it's, um, it, was it was certainly an, a, 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 a different response to their community that, that, that no, later- No, it absolutely is. And it's not the common, I mean, it's opposing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, opposing is one of the, the principles of Pink Goldfish to do the opposite of what everybody mm -hmm. else does. And what everybody else does is sues and, gets upset about patent infringement and trademark infringement and tries to control their IP mm. and, and all these kinds of things and worries about the legal ramifications of people reusing their stuff in different ways. Mm. And instead they saw there was a great opportunity. Again, it's like the Kazakhstan thing. What if we went with it instead of fighting it? One time they banned mm. it and then the next time they took advantage of it and it really paid off for them in ways they otherwise couldn't have. Mm. I heard that story in a book and I can't remember uh, the book that I heard the story in, but I remember I was running, uh, I was running when I was listening to it. I listened to a lot of audiobooks, and I can even see in my head where I was running, but I can't remember the name of the book. I'll have to scroll through my audible account and try to find it. Hmm. You mentioned the, maybe looking up the Todd Rose books. I'll give you two titles from him. One's called the end of average and the other one's called dark horse. Um, and those would get you at least to the right person. And those are both very good, um, very good books. Um, I love it. And, and um, yeah, in closing, I, you know, I think, you know, working with Stan and, and, and reading your material and, and, and being exposed to you, I think it's also given me a bit of a confidence to be me um, more because, you know, just by the nature of me, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a unique cat. Um, but 
realizing that I am, I am um, a connector and a playful connector and, and proudly unemployable <laughs> in a way. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm imminently teamable because I'm not a lone wolf. I never have been and never want to be a lone wolf. But I also know that, that um, the way I approach things um, very holistically um, is, is usually not appreciated by established corporations. You know, they, they, they say it is, but then once you get in there, they would rather you sit in your box, which is sad, I think, for a lot of people. And I've chosen just not to play that game. And, um, and, and based on that, I've also decided to have a sort of a portfolio lifestyle, meaning, you know, I do corporate projects for about half my time and I do mentoring and coaching. So that, you know, the other half and every once in a while, I, after I saved up some money, I go burn it on making a movie because <laughs> it's fun, you know, and, and, um, um, and, and that sort of works for, for me. And, and some people call it, you know, I guess, I guess, uh, shiny object syndrome is one, one, uh, one way you could call it as, as a weakness. Um, but I learned so much and this, this podcast and ebullient is, um, I don't know commercially if it's ever going to work, you know, cause I've decided to stand up ebullient, you know, I've, I made the simplicity scan. I've decided to give that away. Um, I, I'm, I'm really leaning into the podcast is promoting and celebrating everyone else and learning a lot along the way something magical is going to come out of it because there's so many, you know, connections and contacts and I'm learning so much. Um, and, and so I, I also decided to do a sort of ignore. Uh, I, I actually took a, a course on, on how to be a business coach. And it was really all about sell, 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 sell. And I started implementing some of it. And it just, it, it made me feel dirty. And, and like, you know, I, I don't need this. Um, you know, I, I, there's always projects and there's always initiatives that, that are revenue generating. And there's always projects and initiatives that are, that are joy generating. Many times they're the same. And, um, and that's, and that's good enough. And I've made that work. So, um, so thank you. Thank you for, for your message. Thank you for your, um, your inspiration. And I think you yeah, want to say something. Fast, you know, you said a couple of things that stuck out to me. One of the strength weakness combinations in the assessment I'm working on for the freak factor is that someone can be a focused expert, right? And that's a really good thing when you can focus and you can pay attention and you don't get distracted and you dig in and you go deep. And that's absolutely fantastic. The downside is sometimes you miss things because you got blinders on because you're so focused, right? And so mm -hmm. the other side of that is, so there's a strength and weakness there, but the opposing strength and weakness is what I call the limitless explorer. And that's the person who's exploring and they're discovering. And the downside is you can potentially be distractible and unfocused, right? But who cares? Because there's a downside to being super focused too. <laughs> and so uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find his contact information, but somebody you should check in with out in British Columbia in Canada, his name is Clemens Reddick, um, R-E-T-T-I-C-H. Um, he has a similar story, which at least was in the first version of the Freak Factor where, and he ended up doing some kind of coaching or something like that, but he basically just has this 30 years of experience that none of the experiences seem to make sense together. And it, he found a way to bring them all together and become sort of this consultant coach uh, person, but who also does like you do a variety of different projects. And he's just built the kind of life that he wants, but it's not the kind of life that anybody would write um, a, a book of advice about how to get from here to here, because there's no way you could And the experiences mm. that he had were so divergent and so unusual. But the other thing that I have to deal with with my assessment is you might take the assessment and not have any matches, meaning you might not have enough of a strength in any area that you have that opposing weakness. You're not so persistent that you're stubborn, you're just kind of persistent, uh, but you're not afraid to be flexible. And maybe you go through, probably not, but maybe somebody goes through the whole uh, uh, process and has no matches, has no mm. strengths that are also weaknesses. And so, um, the, what I've created is a, a separate profile. So there's 40 and then there's one that's by itself and it's called the balanced generalist. And that what's good about you is that on 40 different dimensions, you're balanced. You have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You're not so much of this that you're not enough of that. You're just enough of each to not be too great, but not be too bad. And there's a huge advantage in that. In fact, you would like this. I don't know if you read it. It's a book called Range uh, by a guy whose last name is Epstein. Um, a fantastic book that I've recommended a bunch of times and that I'm going to recommend in there. It's called Range. And it's basically like what's great about being a generalist in a specialized world or something like that. Mm. 
And so I think we do that. We say you're a jack of all trades and a master of none when being a jack of all trades is fantastic. And especially during a pandemic, people who can change a light bulb and also work on some electricity and also paint a house and also fix a toilet. These are all the things I've been doing. Um, somebody who's kind of good at everything instead of only good at one thing, there's some huge advantages to that. Pretty soon we might have to be killing our own food and starting fires in the outdoors <laughs> and fighting to survive. Mm -hmm. And in a zombie apocalypse, being a professional uh, speaker doesn't really have a lot of value. But so, you are so also a professional runner. So you have a, a, yeah. a leg up on the zombie yeah, but situation. Slow. But slow. <laughs> so the fast things would kill me before oh. I really get my stride, before I really beat them oh. with the endurance. So I think we love to find the downside of all sorts of things. Mm. And it, and I like that you rejected that advice and said, you know what, this is my life and this is the way I want to live in. And even if it's not perfect, who even decides what perfect is? It, it makes me happy. And mm. I like doing it this way. So I'm going to keep doing it this way. And I don't need to narrow down and focus and niche and all these kinds of things. So I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Um, David Rendell, Dave Rendell. Uh, you can find him at drendel um, with two L's uh, at .com, um, also in the show notes. Um, so if you, wherever you're listening or watching this, you can link through. We'll also put, um, I've already put in links to his different books. Um, also the Freak Factor for Children, which is definitely going to be ordered um, uh, for myself, for my kids. So thank you for that. And we'll also put the connections into all these other, these other little jewels that he's, he's shared. Um, I would invite you in this in in this time of 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 seeking, and the, the 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 word that came up so much during this was diversity and diversity of thought, and embracing and welcoming diversity of thought. And what what Dave can bring you is a, is a framework and in a in a, in a space. Uh, you even said it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. A space to accept the uniqueness and 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 the, the difference in your organization and your people and your family and in yourself. So. David, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really, really thank appreciate you. it. I tell people I'm always happy to be talking to anybody outside of my own home. So this is a pleasure. Learn more at ebillion.com slash podcast.